0: This is JAMDA On The Go, your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for JAMDA On The Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman.
1: Welcome to JAMDA On The Go. This podcast will spotlight articles from the April 2021 issue of JAMDA, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. We'll be speaking again with JAMDA Co-Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and Associate Editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health. He is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he's co-director for the program on aging, disability, and long-term care at the Cecil G. Shepp Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, where she is an associate professor of family medicine and director of the residency training program. Doctors Brown and Sloan, welcome back again to JAMDA On The Go.
2: Thanks, Wayne. It's a
1: pleasure. Uh, I'm glad to be here, Wayne. So what will we be talking today uh, regarding articles from the April 2021 issue of JAMDA?
3: Well, Wayne, first off, we'll be talking about several papers on use of the emergency department by residents of long-term care settings. Next, we'll talk about some pearls from a series of papers about muscle wasting, sarcopenia, and exercise in older people.
2: We'll end by discussing whether and how our nation's long history of racism, including policies by regulators today, have led to disparities in nursing home outcomes.
1: Um, And I have to admit, um, to you both that this is an amazing edition of, uh, of JAMDA. So, you know, let's, let's get to it. So our, our first paper, uh, Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Patients Account for a Disproportionately High Number of Adverse Events in the Emergency Department. Um, you know, I, um, I appreciated the JAMDA focus on the Emergency Department or ED uh, care in the April 2021 issue there are a number of us at the society who've worked hard to create a better relationship between the skilled nursing facility or, or sniff uh, setting and the ed at first I glossed over this paper after I saw that it was a secondary review, not about boots on the ground. Um, and probably told me what I already knew or um, you know, uh, or have desired to attend to like, like many of us, but, Um, but Dr. Sloan, the fact that the editors chose to include it led me to believe that there was something more to it and my attention to it became a bit more focused. What did draw the editors to this paper? Can you tell us more about it? Sure. Well, really, it was my ambivalence about the paper
3: Hmm. because I thought it could be misinterpreted in the way it would, you know, it could inappropriately cast post-acute and long-term care in a negative light, Hmm. which happens just so often, you know? So here's what they found and why it's controversial. They used a tool called the Global Trigger Tool, which was developed by Institute for Healthcare Improvement, you know, otherwise known as IHI, we all know them. High on the list of these triggers are falls, medication errors, and healthcare associated infections. Um, there's a long list and I agree that these are things we should look for. I'm just not sure um, <laughs> all of them, like for example, is pneumonia an adverse event? Well, I suppose sometimes it's in hospitals, it may be, but, you know, nursing homes are where people live and not every case of pneumonia is necessarily, you know, an adverse event. Hmm. So they made a couple comparisons that made me uncomfortable. They demonstrated, for example, that PEA, LTC patients more often come with these adverse event conditions than other emergency department patients. Well, that's not a surprise considering that their average age is differed by 25 years, yeah. as well as you know, the long-term care residents being multi-problem population. So I just, you know, it was a no brainer, but to kind of make a big deal as though that there's something wrong here with these the so-called adverse events just didn't seem fair. And then they also demonstrated that um, long-term care patients more often came in with these adverse events than developed in, in the emergency department. And that also seemed like, I mean, they found, for example, that 35 falls occurred before coming to the emergency department and only four in the emergency department. Well, that's not really fair because, you know, they had all this time in the nursing home to fall. And, you know, frankly, you know, having four people fall in the emergency department, that's kind of surprising. So I think their list of problems leading to ER visits is informative and it quantifies what we already know and that we need to be targeting for quality improvement, such as falls and adverse drug events. There were a lot of adverse drug events. However, to me, the other value of this paper is demonstrating how many ER docs unfairly pass judgment on nursing homes without understanding the population and the circumstances and completely ignore some of the things that bother nursing home clinicians, such as um, the fact that emergency departments are diagnosing urinary infections all the time based on finding a few white cells on urinalysis. So, uh,
1: yeah,
3: I uh, I just had an uncomfortable feeling. I just wanted to talk about it because um, in spite of what you've been doing, Wayne, to really try to work out with emergency department, hmm. um, there's still a lot of kind of misinterpretation.
1: Well, um, but the article is, is motivating. I mean, it, it is so preaching to the preachers. Um, you know, we do have strong supporters in the society that do work in the emergency department. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, perhaps this series that you've done within the April, 2021 issue can lead to further discussions about um, what you've already alluded to, you know, quality assurance process improvement, or what we call copy projects. But, you know, it also gives some credence to the American College of Emergency Physicians, um, you know, to perhaps take another look at its relationship with the society. We tried a number of years ago, um, and perhaps, um, perhaps it's we're all ready to define better clarity at, at this point. So, um, at least from my from my viewpoint, um, good to read, and um, and maybe needs to be looked at much more seriously again in the bigger picture so thank you for that Uh, our next paper um how should assisted living be using emergency departments uh along with an editorial um uh, on the paper um you know dr brown uh, um you know our next paper looks at assisted living facilities um we know that a near majority of folks you know live in this type of setting you know in their 80s and their 90s. Uh, we also know that assisted living is largely a social model and not a medical one, although there is med- there are me- medical models kind of popping up throughout and have been for a number of years. And we know that the ability to have hands-on nursing care in this setting is significantly limited. It's a unique environment, and the society has really been working on with groups like the uh, American Healthcare Association and the National Center for Assisted Living. You know, so it is natural that the 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 information regarding assisted living, you know, members, you know, do impact on healthcare resources like the ED, um, and um, and the information is growing. You know, what what have we learned from this paper?
2: Wayne, I completely agree, I think, with everything you've just said. It's certainly not news to anyone listening now. Assisted living was designed to provide supportive care to individuals who have more care needs that can be arranged at home, but are not quite needed in a nursing home. These residents bring a wide range of medical, cognitive, and psychiatric conditions, including dementia, we know, which really places a considerable responsibility on assisted living staff. Hmm. So there are two articles here I want to start by briefly highlighting the brief report characterizing emergency department use in assisted living. The author and her colleagues set out to examine state variability in all cause and injury related emergency department use amongst assisted living residents. They identified nearly 300,000 traditional Medicare beneficiaries who are residing in larger assisted living communities. They looked at ED visits and classified those that occurred secondary to injury. And within the article, they present rates of all cause and injury related ED use per 100 person years in assisted living by individual state. Mm. So I would urge you to take a closer look to see how each individual states, particularly <laughs> perhaps <laughs> your own are doing. Um, but the bottom line is that they observed significant variability among states in all cause and injury related ED use among assisted living residents. The authors conclude there's an urgent need to better understand why this variability is occurring to prevent avoidable visits to the ED. To take this idea a bit further, the overall emergency department utilization is called into question in the editorial, how should assisted living be using emergency departments? And I believe it was really done with some great thought and some noted solutions as well. Reasons for ED use among assisted living residents include onset of acute medical issues at any and all hours of the day, as well as decompensation of chronic medical issues, and also injuries sustained at the community. So to safely minimize emergency department use in this population, the author states that we must consider how care delivery in assisted living could be reasonably modified.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: A few thoughts emerged throughout the piece. First, stricter state regulations regarding on-site capabilities and the criteria for entering and exiting assisted living could potentially impact rates of ED utilization and should be considered. The partnership between the assisted living community and the resident and his or her family must be more transparent during these times, addressing when the care needs have changed and therefore what the next steps in care are to meet the individual's goals. In addition to identifying and managing medical issues in assisted living, the occurrence of adverse events defined as physical injuries because of healthcare are a really important reason that residents present to the emergency department. As I mentioned before, the prior article that's in this month's issue of JAMDA does identify that adverse events at the time of arrival to the ED are more common amongst our assisted living residents. There are opportunities for assisted living to enhance evaluation and management on site. We absolutely know from the COVID-19 pandemic that telemedicine can serve as an incredible resource to improve resources and assessment capabilities. There can also be arrangements with medical practices to have tiered oversight of medical issues with residents being monitored monitored more closely, directly or indirectly, Based on changes in medical status. They don't need to go straight to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There must also be clear and transparent communication with residents and family about subacute changes in mental, medical status and mental status and the possibilities for managing these in assisted living prior to that quick transfer to the ED. Finally, I think um, comes from this article continual reassessment of the data with regard to ED transfer by every assisted living community is absolutely essential. Essential.
4: Yeah,
2: This will help to identify particular gaps in care that require focused attention by that specific community, as well as the, all of our assisted living communities and which services are needed yeah. that might really reduce these transfers.
1: Yeah. I really liked the editorial. It was, it was spot on. The, the variability is so high on how folks are, attended to in these facilities um, that you can't help but understand that the quality at the end of the day is going to be is going to be low and the fact that there's really no standards across state lines is also is also a concern so I know that the society is very much into this but you know it just highlights that um, I think we know what to do I think we just have to start doing something
3: Well, you know, um, there are two sides to this, you know, there will be a lot of pushback for this kind of thing because of concern about medicalization of assisted living. And there, you know, assisted living has many proponents who say, look, you know, this is a non-medical setting and, uh, you just want to turn it into nursing homes by having medical staff and more nurses. And if you turn it into a nursing home, well then maybe they won't have to go to the emergency department as much, but, um, and so there is this pushback about that. And, no, and on the other hand, um, there's a lot of inappropriate sending to nursing home because there's nobody there to do, look at somebody who falls, you know, and just examine them to make sure that they're not hurt. And so um, there are two sides to this. I think though, the increasing, um, the increasing medical morbidity, you know, the, the more um, medical problems in assisted living you know, and the more people with advanced dementia, it really does, I, I'm with you, Wayne, you know, something, it needs to be more medical than it is. Mm. And mm. ideas like telemedicine, you know, and really having more of, for example, well, there was a study in Wake, Wake County, not far from here, where they worked out a deal with the EMS, that the EMS could come in and examine the person and yes. decide whether they really needed to go. And they reduced emergency Department transfers for falls by over 80%.
1: Yep. Um, I remember that study. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And now,
0: a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post Acute Care.
4: Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now, more than ever, post acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At US Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening
1: let's move on to something we know, we know a little bit more about and um, done a little bit more work on. Next article has to do with sarcopenia. So Dr. Sloan, um, you know, as you're well aware as, as co-editor in chief, you know, JAMDA has been a proponent for sarcopenia research for a long time. We know so much more about sarcopenia than we ever have in the past. It, it, uh, it, We've come such a long way to the approach of the sarcopenic older adult that sometimes you would think, what more can we possibly learn about sarcopenia? And clearly there is more information to glean. And uh, in the April 2021 issue of JAMDA, there is a paper on sarcopenia uh, and the effect of a dairy product, actually a fortified yogurt, which to this country might seem not so impressive, but to other cultures Pardon the pun, where yogurt dishes are a mainstay, a mainstay of the diet, it might be extremely impactful. Very interesting stuff. Tell us a little bit about this article.
3: Well, thank you. Um, and actually, we had twenty-four papers about um, something related to muscle
1: mm.
3: in this issue of Jamna. And so, in addition to talking about that paper, I'll kind of say a little bit of general things about um, this whole where this field is going. Um, you know, because many AMDA members that have commented on how much they see about muscle weakness and sarcopenia, like, you know, they get kind of tired of it. And it is true, you know, in the research world, it's a hot area, especially in Europe and Asia, less so here. So we put, you know, a whole bunch of them in this issue, um, kind of as an update. And, um, but there are some papers and there's an editorial and clinical uh, implications that I think are more relevant for clinicians. Um, but I want to start by summarizing my perspective on this topic. You know, we know that many older people become weak and lose muscle mass, you know, and that's what's referred to as sarcopenia. And sometimes a person becomes thin as part of the process, uh, but other times you can't even tell the difference because the muscle tends to be replaced by fat and they have what's called you know, um, ar- sarcopenic obesity. Mm. And it requires testing to determine how little muscle mass the person has. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting area. There's still no consensus, but we're getting closer. Um, and the current consensus pretty much across the various continents is that you look at muscle strength, muscle mass, and physical performance together, you know, things like getting up in a chair, you know, five times. And um, it appears that muscle strength is a lot more important than muscle mass, so we don't have to go you know, do tests and measure the muscles as much to find out you know, what they can do. So you know, if you wanna screen for this kind of thing, you know, grip strength and a five, five times getting up from the chair is great screening. So with that kind of thinking about how you might want to at least quantify you know, how a resident or a patient is doing, then the next question is, what can you do about it? And um, this is where what you're talking about this um, nutritional intervention. Um, they, first of all, you know, for years we tried pharmacologic therapies like growth hormone and androgenic compounds, you know, which can increase muscle mass, but the side effects are just too bad. You know, they're too. You know, so now the issue is between um, nutrition versus exercise versus both. And the idea of nutrition is you know, high protein supplements. And so we had several articles about that in this jam. The one that I really liked was a randomized controlled trial from Iran of a novel protein and vitamin fortified yogurt therapy. And it was a nicely done trial. And, and they, as opposed to many trials, really reported marked improvement in strength, gait speed, things that actually matter. And they also muscle mass and outpatients who were not so advanced that they you know, couldn't Do a reasonable exercise program Um, there was another study conducted in 25 nursing homes in this country that documented disappointingly low attendance rates for a novel nursing home exercise program called bingo size to try to make it you know appealing so the strongest factor associated with participation (laughs) was the cms star rating in the nursing home which tells us that um, all these things you know are tied in together
1: Mm. Um, I read about bingo size, and I I couldn't help but think of your predecessor, Dr. John Morley, uh, former editor in chief. I, I that would be something that he would just love to see happening, and I and I could have could have sworn that was something that he advocated for as well. This concept of bingo size.
3: Well, you know, the one was a final thought. The one thing I can't help reflecting on is when you think about basic kind of physiology of aging. You know. How much of this is due to um, age? How much is it due to disease? How much of it's due to the sedentary lifestyle, you know, disuse? And medical and public health providers try to emphasize keeping moving, but there's still way more aging people in front of the television than lifting weights and walking the treadmill. So um, I, in my own opinion is that there's so much of what we see as sarcopenia is really just a sedentary lifestyle.
1: But it also confirms the heterogeneity of, of aging because um, I can't help but recall a, uh, an older adult, I believe she was in her mid-90s, who had, um, who had a mechanical fall and a pelvic fracture. And after a number of days in the skilled nursing facility, I watched her putting on her tennis shoes as she was bending over. Um, keeping a straight leg, bending over, putting our tennis shoes on, and said, "I am leaving this place because my yoga students are missing me." So, uh, I think uh, I think there are great opportunities out there, and we just have to continue to to uh, to, to 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 push them. But um, no, thank you very much for uh, for that, um, Doctor Brown. Our, our last paper for discussion from the April 2021 issue of JAMDA is a special article that highlights what could be considered the leading issue in our country today, which is uh, systemic racism. Um, it was a, a moving article, uh, I will say. It, it, it begins with a palpable statement. Long-term services and supports for older persons in the United States are provided in a complex, racially segregated system with striking racial disparities in access, process, and outcomes of care for residents. Um, I have to admit this article is not a quick read. Um, it uh, It is somewhat Shocking to see on paper as it discusses an environment that all of us have been so committed to um, for years and for um, and during this pandemic Um, and uh, it discusses some um, uh, Some the key the key domains of systemic racism. It is thoughtful. It is well written. It is a resource. Um, it, it was, it was just an impressive, impressive article, um, uh, you know, for helping us kind of think what is next for the post COVID-19 long-term care world. Um, the articles, authors are grouped uh, together, but they're bookended by the JAMDA co-editors in chief. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, can you lead us, can you lead us through this truly, um, uh, uh Amazing uh, uh, article in the in, uh, in this issue of JAMDA.
2: I can do my best, Wayne. <laughs> um, over the past few months, we've seen JAMDA publish on a wider variety of timely and impactful articles. This month's issue brings a powerful piece, as you mentioned before, um, addressing systemic racism in nursing homes, written by our very own Dr. Phil Sloan and his co-editor-in-chief, Cheryl Zimmerman. The article documents the long-standing pervasiveness of health disparities in long-term care. It explains how systemic racism perpetuates these disparities, notes how the COVID-19-related disparities and outcomes by race are directly connected to systemic racism, and offers practical suggestions for addressing systemic racism and improving racial equality in these settings. I think you said this before, but essentially it's a must-read, and it, is, um, it takes a few times. Um, there's, it's not short, but it is, is really meaningful and impactful. Mm-hmm. I'll try to give an overview here, but I strongly suggest to our listeners to take the time to actually read through the whole article. <clears throat> Let's start with the numbers. The two main residential settings nationwide are, near, are the nearly 30,000 assisted living communities which house just over 800,000 residents, and the roughly 15,000 nursing homes, which house 1.3 million residents. Historically, black individuals were less likely to use nursing homes than white individuals, and scholars debated to what extent this differential reflected preferences versus barriers to access. However, more recently, black individuals are disproportionately more likely to use nursing home care than white individuals but tend to be concentrated in a relatively small number of homes that are largely for profit and serve primarily persons on Medicaid, have lower levels of nursing staffing, and tend to have worse resident outcomes regardless of race. One key factor leading to concentrations of Black individuals in low-quality nursing homes is the payment system. Medicare and most private insurance contracts pay only for post-acute, rehabilitative episodes as opposed to longer-term care. An uptake of private long-term care insurance policies is low, such that there is no systemic coverage of long-term care in the United States. The result? Most long-term care users pay out of pocket if and while they have the funds to do so. But generations of discriminatory policies leading to lower levels of wealth among Black individuals mean that the fewer funds are available to pay out of pocket. Persons who are impoverished can receive coverage from Medicaid, but Medicaid nursing home rates are much lower than those of other payers. This situation results in residential long-term care settings vying to admit non-Medicaid, disproportionately non-Black patients, a situation that is inherently discriminatory. Assisted living and CCRCs are traditionally expensive private pay options, not covered by Medicare, and therefore, along these same lines, disproportionately full of white residents. Another important issue is the workforce in these facilities. The vast majority of hands-on service in long-term care care settings are provided by low-paid, racially diverse, primarily female workers. We know they perform critically important physically and emotionally stressful work, ranging from personal care to monitoring medically complex conditions, yet they're paid barely more than the minimum wage, often without benefits. The breakdown at this level is about a quarter black, an eighth Latino, a 12th Asian, and less than half the workforce is white. As one ascends the healthcare ladder, racial and ethnic diversity decline, so what often prevails is low-paid people of color caring for primarily white clientele under the supervision of primarily white managers. Dr. Sloan, would you like to comment on how these disparities have been exemplified by the COVID-19 pandemic?
3: Before I start, I would like to comment on the fact that other. Some of the co-authors of this article were just so helpful to me in understanding the issue. And one of them was a second author. Um, is Dr. Rakaia Yerby, who's a a professor in the law school at St. Louis University um, and has spent, oh, 10 or 15 years researching legal aspects about and legal issues around racism in long-term care among other healthcare settings. And I learned a lot from her about, how the the field evolved in a way that um, some not so subtle issues have led to some of the problems we have, such as we saw during COVID-19. And there were several results. For example, you know, we all know that PPE was hard to find early in the um, pandemic. And it took connections and often extra money to obtain PPE. And so facilities with more generous budgets were able to find it, whereas others were not the poorer facilities who had more minority patients and staff for reasons that Mallory's talked about went much longer without adequate PE. And this was especially bad because these homes were often located in or near communities of color, which had higher in community COVID rates for some of the other reasons that are identified in the paper. So staff were more likely to bring the disease into the facility. And finally, CMS, in its wisdom, you know, continuing its unintentionally racist strategy of taking money from the poor and giving it to the rich, instituted policies that rewarded the facilities that did well with more resources and find the ones that were struggling.
2: Thanks, Phil. I really appreciate your insights. Um, I want to end just by speaking briefly to the implications for policy and practice that you and the authors close with. I think they're really powerful. First, we must acknowledge systemic racism as the root cause of the racial and ethnic disparities in settings, care quality, and outcomes. Along with acknowledgement must come the recognition that, quote, colorblind, end quote, policies and data systems perpetuate and reinforce systemic racism by failing to document and monitor the patterns by race and ethnicity that constitute disparities. Second, we need to invest in our communities. Policymakers must commit to a large-scale investment in neighborhoods where a majority of residents are minorities. These investments will build wealth, which over time will help increasing numbers of racial and ethnic minority individuals to pay for quality health care, including nursing home care. The public financing of nursing home care must also change because the marked difference between Medicaid reimbursement and that provided by other payers is a key factor leading to the stratification of long-term care settings by race and resources. Increasing Medicaid payment is a good first step. Where it's been done, it has reduced disparities. Another policy priority to address structural racism is reducing workforce inequities that maintain direct care workers at wages near the poverty level, exclude them from benefits, limit their voice and care decisions, and provide, at best, modest opportunities for advancement. Immediate steps in this direction include prioritizing them for receipt of resources such as PPE, increasing compensation with funds from the CARES Act, and providing hazard pay to staff who are abused or undertake significant risk of disease or injury in the line of duty. Perhaps most difficult to address are racist attitudes And cultural values that underline much of the structural and interpersonal racism in long-term care. Training health professionals in racism awareness, structural racism, implicit bias, and cultural humility is a first step.
1: Wow. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Brown. You know, I would uh, just offer two additional thoughts. One is at the annual meeting uh, in March of 2021, with the Society for Q Long-term Care Medicine, the House of Delegates approved two resolutions um, introduced by the state of Kentucky to um, further advance or support certified nursing assistants, which are essentially being discussed in this uh, in, in this article. Uh, and there was a lot of very good discussion about uh, about doing so. Um, and the National Association for um, for this profession uh, is also being considered as uh, potential partners. Um, the second I'll, I'll say is that this article um, merits, uh, as we have said a number of times already, merits reading and absorbing. But I would I would challenge our uh, the society, state chapters, um, geriatric fellowships, uh, advanced practice societies, to uh, read this article and and discuss it and determine ways in which we all can work together as an integrated as an integrated system uh in order to make uh, um to make this to make our world uh and this environment um better uh, i would also encourage that our legislators also take a look at this article because i think that in my opinion it is um, much better written than anything else I have seen um, up to now, given the, the, the racial disparities that have come to light. That concludes our overview of the April 2021 issue of JAMDA. Uh, again, a, an amazing collection of articles that help us in the post-acute and long-term care world to think and do better. Under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan Dr. Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, the Journal of the American Medical Director Association continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. Take a look at the impactful April 2021 issue. Doctors Sloan and Brown, thank you once again for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. Well, thank you so much, Wayne. Thank you. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. And until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for Jamda on the Go.
0: Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.